We are once again in Esther. So if you have your Bibles, let's get there. The book of Esther, right before the book of Psalms and Job, where you'll find Esther. We've been in a series here, and we'll continue today in chapter 4 of the book of Esther. I love a good rescue story. I don't know about you, but there's something about deliverance that is attractive to me. This week I read about how on March 25th, 2006, mountaineer Lincoln Hall found himself stranded on the side of Mount Everest. Lincoln Hall had climbed up, done his ascent with a team. On the way back down, he got sick, and the rest of his team, his crew, uh, were also under dire conditions, and they knew he could not, they could not carry his body down the mountain. So they had to leave him there to die. It's a phenomenon that happens sometimes more, more, frequently, than you, more frequently than you would think. Um, and there's also another weird dynamic about being stranded on Everest, and it is that because it costs anywhere between $25,000 and $100,000 to make an ascent, for a lot of people it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing that they train for years, they dream about it, and when they're going up, if they're going towards the top of the mountain and they see a climber who's injured and they're not sure they can help them, it's really, really common for other climbers to pass by an injured person and then pass back down and not help them at all. They don't want to put their own vainglory in jeopardy of getting to the ascent. So things looked really bad. In fact, the next day, his team, when they got down to base camp without him, they announced to the world via radio that Lincoln Hall had perished on the mountain. But in fact, he had not perished. He had survived there on Mount Everest with no gloves, no hat. He had altitude sickness. He was in despair. But he somehow managed to stay alive. And that day, another climber was ascending with his team named Daniel Mazur. And as he came upon Lincoln, he made the decision that many had not. In fact, just a week earlier, a different climber had been left by his team and he died. But Daniel decided to risk his neck, everything, and especially his own ascent to the top of the mountain. He stopped his climbing. He grabbed Lincoln and for four hours he struggled to bring him down to the base camp. And finally he made it. Lincoln was rescued. He had to live the rest of his life with frostbitten fingers. Most of his fingers were actually removed uh, because of that. But he was rescued by one man putting aside his own personal priorities for the good of others. And as we jump to the book of Esther today, the long leap in terms of geography and time between Mount Everest and Esther But it's a short little leap because the point of both of these stories is the same. Rescue is the point. When you think about Esther, no matter where you're at, whatever chapter you're in, you need to be thinking of God as rescuer. Throughout the Bible, he's going to show himself as one able to rescue his corporate people and able to rescue you as an individual. We're going to focus on that today as we come to chapter 4 together. I want to read through the chapter with you, and then after that, we'll make some application. But before we start, remember what happened in chapter 3. 
Put yourself in the world of Esther here. It's sometime in the 400s B.C. That's about 100 years after the time of Daniel, if you're familiar with Daniel and his story. Uh, many of the Jews have been exiled, and some were now starting to go back to Jerusalem. But some were stuck in the foreign empire of Persia. Mordecai and Esther are the two cousins in our story who are Jews displaced, stuck in modern-day Iran, and they have no way of getting home. So they're minority people group. To make matters worse, in chapter 3, one of the highest officials in all of Persia had a run-in with Mordecai, one of these Jewish characters here. And when he did, he left personally offended. Haman did. Okay? So much so that in his offended state, what was revealed was some internal racism he carried around with him against all the Jews. So his reaction to being personally offended was to make a decree along with the king of genocide. Complete racial destruction of all of the Jews in the empire has been declared. And as we step into chapter 4 of Esther, we get to see Mordecai and Esther's reaction to what's going on here. So let's jump in. Verse 1 of chapter 4. <clears throat> I'll just read a few verses and it'll stop. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes and he went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one's allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. What's key to note here is Mordecai is grieving. He joins Jacob and Job before him in the Bible story in carrying out a, a traditional cultural way to express your grief. He gripped what was likely his most expensive outfit, his church duds, or his work suit, if you would, and he physically tore it in two, rending and ripping the fabric in order to expose his skin. And then... He would go to the closet and he would grab a, a robe made only of goat hair. It was itchy. It was irritable. It would cause sores on you. It's the fabric they used to put grain in. Not good for clothes, but it was intentionally a robe that was worn to irritate the wearer. As one author said, this outfit would deny a mourner comfort, numbing, or forgetting. And then you see in your mind, hopefully, Mordecai walking to a fireplace, grabbing fistfuls of gray ashes, throwing them on his hair, rubbing it on his face, streaking it down his arms. All of this is so that he can embody death itself. That's the scene we jump into here. It's not through. After that, Mordecai would go out publicly into the city, into the one place in town where you knew all the commerce was going on, political debate would happen, it's the gate area, and he would stand there and he would wail. We don't do a lot of wailing in our culture, but he would, it involves screaming, at the top of your lungs, stomping around, until your voice got too hoarse to do it any longer. He would scream out to God 
He would cry out against his persecutors. And in this situation, it didn't go on too long before the authorities pushed him out of the most popular set, section of town. You can't do this at the king's gate. You're going to have to move. So he's being ostracized. You should see him putting himself at great physical and social risk. But we'll get back to that in a minute because the story continues. The story's not just about Mordecai. Remember his cousin Esther, also a Jew, through a series of odd circumstances, has been raised up in the king's court even to the position of queen. And now we see her reaction to hearing the news that cousin Mordecai is down at the gate. Verse 4. When Esther's young women and eunuchs came to her and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. So she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he wouldn't accept them. Put some clothes on, man. Seems to be her reaction. You're embarrassing yourself. I'm going to solve this problem. Your problem must be you need more clothes. You can imagine Mordecai says, that's not the problem. I got clothes. This is much, much deeper. Verse 5 then Esther called for her uh, servant here, one of the king's eunuchs, Hathix, who had been appointed to attend to her, and she ordered him to go to Mordecai and learn what this was and why it was the queen, wrapped up in her palace life of comfort and pleasure, had no idea what her respectable father figure was up to. Verse 6, the servant complies. Hathix went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, the exact sum of money that Haman, that's the bad guy, had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in their city of Susa for the destruction of the Jewish people. And he did it so that Hathix might show it to Esther and explain it to her and then command her to go to the king to beg the king's favor and plead with the king on behalf of her people. And Hathix went and told Esther all that Mordecai had said. You see now, hopefully, the seed of a rescue plan being planted. Mordecai has got this figured out. There's a death sentence for all of our people. I know someone near the king. It's the queen. She's got to go in there and plead our case. Sounds pretty cut and dry, but Esther immediately shoots a gaping hole in the plan. Verse 10. Well, she speaks to her servant. So what's going on here? It's almost like a uh, middle school communication in that they're never really talking themselves, but there's always a go-between here. So she's always talking to the servant. He goes to Mordecai. Mordecai goes to the servant. He has to go to the palace because Mordecai can't go in the palace at all. So now, what happens here? is uh, in verse 10, Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, look, verse 11, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside his inner court without being called, there's only one law to be put to death. That's a hard law, right? Except to the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may be uh, alive. He may live. But as for me, she says, as for me, Esther, I haven't been summoned. I haven't been called into the king in these 30 days. So there's a couple flaws here in Mordecai's plan. 
first to approach the king without being summoned means that you'll die. You can't just walk up to the ancient king of the world in those days. His will is done. He has to call you. There are some exceptions, but you're not guaranteed an exception, especially even if you're the queen. So she's scared. To add to that, she seems to have fallen out of favor. Esther wants the the favorite of the king, for whatever reason, in 30 days, she hasn't been called to him at all. So she's double-dog scared. And Mordecai seems to smell it, right? In verse 13, he smells her fear, and he takes a firm stance. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, okay, if she feels this way, tell her this. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Keeping silent won't save, says Mordecai, because your hidden Jewishness will be found out anyway. And then he offered a bit of a motivational push there. Seize the day. God has prepared you for this day, for such a time as this. Final verses show a turning in Esther. It's very important. A shaky resolve to move forward the plan that she thinks God might have here for her people. Read it with me in 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. She's coming around. Verse 16. Go and gather all the Jews in this city, Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for these three days, night or day. I and my young women will also have a a fast, as you do. And then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away, and he did everything as Esther had ordered him. And you're leaving the end of chapter 4 in a major cliffhanger. (laughs) Hopefully you'll go home and read the whole book. Maybe you have before and you know what happens. But today, I want to leave us right there and focus on what God has for us here in chapter 4. Because as we look back, if we do so carefully, we can see that God is rescuing His people. And what I want to show you is three ways That God can rescue you. Three ways God rescues you. Here's the first one. And it's the hardest one, by the way. I have to put on a big kid pants to hear it, but I'm not just called to comfort you, I'm called to challenge you. Here's the first one. God rescues you by increasing your vulnerability. All right? God rescues you By increasing your vulnerability. Sounds kind of scary. Not sure I'm going to like the sound of this. Increasing my own vulnerability. As far as I know, there are no Avengers with a superpower of vulnerability. We don't like weakness, do we? It's not intuitive. Seems like something that would make me anxious. However, there's no denying that both Mordecai and Esther are extremely vulnerable within this story. Mordecai goes hungry, loses his clothes, bore his body in public shame, was kicked out of the city gate. 
lost his place of prominence. Esther, for her part, literally has to risk her neck. But it was through these risks, these vulnerable people, that God saves his people. And here's where we have to make a crucial distinction here. It's really challenging. First, Esther and Mordecai show us what true vulnerability is. It's when you put yourself out for the benefit of others. And sometimes it results in true victimhood. And Jesus always wants us to move towards victims in compassion and care. Esther's Hebrew name means compassion. So we do this today. We love to work with vulnerable victims. This week, Sean and I were in dialogue with a pastor friend of ours who uh, has a ministry. And the focus of the ministry is helping the community and the church care for victims of domestic assault and abuse. We love to move towards those victims. This week I was working with another group of people who are uh, working in Europe, Eastern Europe, to prevent uh, human trafficking. We've got this rampart there. We want to do what we can do to work with those victims. <coughs> Yesterday, the uh, organization A21 met here in this building. They're all about ending slavery here in North Carolina, uh, people being trafficked back and forth, often kids. I know many of you work in great ministries through abortion and other things that focus on systemic victims in our society and also individual victims. We as Christians are called to care there. And as we care, we can embrace our own vulnerability. It often happens when you rub up with someone who's truly vulnerable, you have to embrace your own. And that's when you see your need for Jesus. That's when you see you can't solve all of life's problems and you need someone else to come in and rescue you. If you increase your vulnerability... It's a part of God's rescue plan for you and the rest of his people. By his spirit, he's sanctifying you through your vulnerability. You begin to live desperately. You begin to take risk. You begin to see your need for Jesus. There's another part to this that's also really, really hard and challenging. Because as you meet with true victimized people, and again, I'm talking about truly victims of sexual abuse, domestic abuse, on down the line. Occasionally, you'll find people who are more relationally, they might fit in the category of false victims. Okay, we have to be very careful to even address this subject, but it happens in our society, especially with relationships. And it's uh, been seen as a big temptation by people who study this within the church, even. Instead of true victimhood, you might call it fictionhood. Okay? Uh, philosophers, um, Derek Richemay, Mike Cosper's a pastor, David Brooks, they've all written about this phenomenon. It goes like this Because technology has increased so much in our world today as compared to previous generations, we now have more access to information, right? And when you gain access to information, you now have responsibility to act. Follow me? And when you have responsibility and you can't always fulfill it, what usually follows? Some guilt, right? 
For instance, think about adoption. Uh, I can go online and I can see the needs of many unadopted orphans in foreign countries. And I remember traveling to China when I adopted my daughter. And I went over there and I met a, I met a girl who was adopting two at once. I was like, man, you're adopting two at once. And I began to have these thoughts like, couldn't I really do more here? Couldn't I skip some more meals and give some more to adoption causes? And I began to feel a little bit guilty that I wasn't able to do more than I wanted to do, right? This can happen in all kinds of relationships that we have. We're stuck with some guilt, and what are we going to do with it? Well, oftentimes what happens in our culture, you'll see it in long online chat rooms all the time, you'll see it even in the church, is to escape this guilt, we will oftentimes very subtly try to place the guilt on someone else that we have a relationship with, right? For instance, let's say you're at your job. You have a job here in Raleigh, but you want to serve in orphan care. You want to do more, and you start thinking, why am I not doing more? Why am I not doing more? There's got to be some reason that I'm not having more impact. Oh, I get it. Even though I'm making a medium median wage at my employment, I think he should be paying me more. If he paid me more, 10000 20000 more a year, I could do more and help other people. He's financially being aggressive towards me, right? He's oppressing me. We start to have these thoughts. Oh, think about my time. Say you work in Raleigh. You work 40 hours a week, but you'd love to have more time to volunteer to help other people, and you start to feel guilty about it. What do you do with the guilt? Well, if my boss would let me just work 30 hours a week, like they do in Europe, I'd have 10 more hours. This is chronology abuse. I should have more time. We do this in our hearts. This is where we have to have our big kid pants on because it's very challenging. It's been written that in a culture with very few moral norms, what I mean by that is people just don't agree on what's good and what's bad these days. In a culture where that's deteriorated, one thing that stands out is we all hate bullies, right? It's pretty universal. We all hate bullies. Now follow me. You might be tempted in a relationship, if you're feeling guilt, to paint the other person as a bully. All right? If you can create a narrative, if you can create a fiction where the reason for your guilt is the other person's fault, all kinds of things start to happen. You begin to see yourself as you share this oppression you're having from someone else like your boss. You begin to see yourself as open. I'm transparent. I'm sharing all these bad things about him, right? I'm vulnerable for sharing all these terrible things about that other person. You deal with your guilt by passing it along to someone else. You justify your sinful behavior because after all, he's a bully. Didn't he have it coming? I've got a moral pass now to do what I want. Very dangerous thing in our culture and even the church has to look out for it. Now what makes this hard is even to talk about these things People are tempted to think, oh, you don't love victims? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we love true victims, but we watch out 
because there is a, such a thing as a faker, right? And you say, well, how do I tell? It's hard. You need discernment. You need the spirit. We need each other as a body. People who think long and hard about this have noticed a couple things, but it's very complex. That people wrapped up in their own fictionhood, sharing common. Here's a couple things you can look out for. First off, fakers, people who are living in their own fantasy narrative, will never let you disagree with them. Ever. Even if it's respectfully and lovingly in a conversation, disagree with them, they will have none of it. Because what happens if you disagree with the story they're telling? The house crumbles down, right? So beware if you come in contact with someone who will never allow you to disagree with them. And secondly, truly vulnerable people will put themselves in harm's way for the sake of others. And that's really what we see here. Fakers usually are trying to gain something, right? Get off their own moral guilt, or maybe even they're trying to gain something else. But truly vulnerable people put themselves in harm's way for other people. And that's what we see here with Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai refused to bow earlier because it was offense to his people. It was for others. He publicly humiliated himself for other people. Esther's risk going into the throne room is going to be not just for herself, but for the good of all of her ethnicity. And by the way, this is where Jesus Christ is really impressive. If you truly consider what he did when he left heaven and came down to earth and came in the person of a bodybuilder? No. MMA fighter? No. Rich man? No. Came in the frail position, the most vulnerable position of a newborn that needed total taking care of, in an earthly sense, right? Completely vulnerable, he starts his life. Then we have a blank in the life of Jesus, right? We don't get Jesus a teenager. We catch up to him again when he's in his 30s. And what's happening? Well, he's being betrayed by his friends. People in John are picking up stones, ready to stone him. They don't like the stuff he says. Ultimately, he's delivered, and his body is born for public shame. He is killed so that we can be redeemed, that we can be rescued. And then he seals the rescue with his own resurrection. He's the epitome of glorious vulnerability. He talked about it when he walked around teaching. One thing he used to say was, there's no greater love than this. Remember that? One who lays down his life for his friends. That's the kind of vulnerability, true vulnerability, that we want to see. That's true transparency and true openness, true vulnerability. And that says he's worthy to be trusted. He's worthy as your treasure. He's worthy to rescue you. Your rescue will be accomplished by increasing your own vulnerability. That's the way of the cross. It should be encouraging to you, although it requires a lot of wisdom. Now, secondly, here in the text, we see something else. God rescues you by increasing your vulnerability, but another way he rescues you, God rescues you by solidifying your identity. All right? 
solidifying your identity. It's amazing in the text, if you pay close attention, to see the transformation of Esther. All right, when we first hear from her, she seems oblivious to the plight of her people, right? Think about it. A warrant for the destruction of your entire ethnicity has been issued from your home, the palace, and you know nothing about it. Why is that? Well, it seems like she has left identifying herself as God's child, a Jew, and she's now embraced the identity of a Gentile. She's eating with the Persians. She's sleeping with the Persians. She's more Persian than Jew. It seems like she has tucked her Jewish identity within her Persian blouse, and it's hidden. The problem is, for her people to be saved, for the Messiah to come, for Jesus to rescue the whole world, she has to embrace her identity as one of God's people. Esther would have to meet Hadassah, which was her Jewish name. She seemingly left behind when she entered into the king's court. And the turning point seems to be in verse 14, if you look at it again. She's encountered with Mordecai's words. Mordecai says, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. After that, she's all action. There seems to be a change, a transformation. We don't know what it was. Maybe it's Mordecai's jarring words where he said, Remember you, your father? He was a Jew. Remember your father's house. You're a part of that. Maybe it was her own story as she thought about it. How she as a very young girl was conscripted into this icky harem for the king. Likely abused. Then forgotten about. Maybe as she was talking to Mordecai she remembered some stories she heard when she was a young Jewish girl. Stories of rescue from Joshua or Deborah or Moses. We don't know what it is, but she seems at this point willing to embrace who she really is. Her response to Mordecai is in the end, as writer Tim Keller says, it is the language of identification, mission, and obedience. Mordecai's call to action causes her to realize that she's not in the palace for herself, but for other people. All right, now here's the thing. God's not going to rescue her by her being a hero. Not how this works. You're not going to rescue her by her being morally perfect. But God is going to rescue her if she embraces her identity of a child of God. Now it's good for us to think about what robs our identity today. If you're here and you're a believer, the chief way you're supposed to think about yourself is follower of Christ, child of God. That's who you are. At the essence of you, that's who you are. But things will rob us of that, right? Here's one, loss. What about loss? How does losing something threaten your identity? Maybe you lose your occupation, you lost your job, and you think to yourself, man, I thought we had a deal, me and God. If I obeyed him, then he would handle the paycheck. But now, I'm not getting a paycheck. Doesn't God love me? 
if I lost this thing in my life, doesn't he love me? Am I not his? See how that threatens some of these really deep realities? Same thing about doubt. Doubt can threaten your identity. How come I commit the same sin last week that I commit this week? And if I think about it, a month ago I did the same thing. Man, what's wrong with me? Am I really worthy enough for God to care about? Am I even really saved? See how that works? You've gone from God's child to, why am I so messed up? What about humiliation? Humiliation can bash your identity in Christ. Man, you failed the test. You failed your relationship. You failed the team. Am I just a loser? He begins to think. Shame, is that who I am? That becomes your identity. But here's the trick, what Esther shows us. And it's surprising that sometimes these very threats to our identity can be used by God to secure it. All right? God wants to use the threats to your identity to actually secure your identity as a child of God. Here's how this works. Through loss, through loss, we can see how God's unfailing love cannot be lost, ever. That's how we learn it. For all else can be stripped away, right? So painful, you don't even want to talk about it. But you can take my employment, you could take my health, you could take my kids, you could take my spouse, but there's no way you can take my father. I'll always be his child. The covenant is permanent. When you face loss in your life, God can use that to reform your identity as his child. And that is how he rescues you, right? Think about doubt. Through doubt, we can find reassurance and hope. Think about the major doubters in the Bible. Thomas. It's his nickname, right? John the Baptist. Man, when I read Thomas' story, I'm like, hey, you doubt Jesus? This isn't just some preacher's word. You doubt the person, Jesus? You're out of the club, man. Lose your disciple card. It's not what Thomas learned, man. Thomas learns that Jesus can actually handle doubters. All right? He earns a gritty faith in that moment. Same thing with John the Baptist. We see our Father can handle our doubt. Humiliation? Well, through your humiliation, we can identify closely with our humiliated, vulnerable Savior, right? We feel His loneliness. Man, it's loneliness. Lonely to be shamed. If you've ever been shamed, lonely. But you can identify with Jesus' shame. Brokenness, Christ felt that. You can feel a little bit of his and a little taste of his death as you die inside when you are humiliated. What this does is it breeds intimacy with your Savior. You share his experiences. It breeds intimacy. That intimacy with Christ is a part of his rescue for you. Writer Beth Jenkins recently wrote about how our identities are challenged at work. I want to read you something that she wrote. I read it this week, and it's kind of long, but 
You can handle it. It's really good. She's talking about uh, some of you in your jobs are faced with big, deep questions of identity. She writes this, some of us are in positions of influence in our culture, whether it's a public school teacher or a public company executive. We have to navigate questions of identity in complicated situations that might cost us. For instance, does it matter whether anyone at work knows I'm a Christian when my faith isn't directly related to my work? If I'm seeking a job in an industry that has an anti-Christian bias, like higher education or journalism, should I refrain from putting church volunteer activities on my resume? Isn't being present in a company, even if that means engaging in morally questionable activities, isn't it better than abandoning it altogether? This is key here. She says, to answer these questions, seeing Esther as an example will crush us, but seeing Jesus as a redeemer will save us. He's the ultimate mediator who risked the palace and the riches to save us. He goes before the king. He doesn't say, if I perish, I perish. Jesus says, when I perish, I perish. When he's our security, he's our value, and he's our worth, we can risk the palace, our positions, our connections, our careers, our riches, because in him we are truly free. As the gospel becomes increasingly precious to us, we begin to see that these questions aren't just about us, but about others too. When we're in positions of influence and open about our identification as God's people, we can be a part of his redemption for his people. And finally, this is good. She says, wherever you are right now, you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good work. You have certain gifts, abilities, talents, weaknesses, sufferings, and experience that enable you to help certain people, though it may cost you. No matter how you came to power in your community, church, or organization, it's never too late to hear and obey God's call. If you understand that you're his child, then your mission isn't for yourself, but for others. And who knows, perhaps you have come to your position for such a time as this. Here's the point. All of these identity struggles that we have are a part of God's rescue plan for you in Jesus Christ. When you have them, know that he can use them, like he did Esther's, to rescue you and his people. Finally, third way we can see here that God rescues you. God rescues you by recalling <laughs> your security, by recalling your security. Look back at verse 14. I'll show you what I mean by that. I want to read it again so we don't miss it. This is Mordecai talking here. Verse 14. He says to Esther, For if you keep silent at this time, everything's on the line. Jews are in danger. Our people are going to be wiped out. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. How do you know that? This is before the deliverance when he says this. We don't see that he's some kind of a savant or prophet here. How can he be so sure? And furthermore, what in the world kind of sales pitch is this to her? If you're drowning and somebody walks by with a life preserver, you wouldn't say, throw me a life preserver, but if you don't, the next person will. <laughs> Not what you would say. 
Where's he coming from here? We have to understand what Mordecai is talking about. I think he's recalling a past rescue operation, and he's trusting in that for his future rescue by God. All right? Mordecai doesn't necessarily know the winds and the howls of his rescue. He just knows God is that type of God. So he's able to say these huge things like, even if you don't do it, God's going to save us. He has trust. He doesn't have specifics. He has a record of character. He doesn't have the outcome. Amazingly, the Apostle Paul had a very similar experience. You might remember If you've read about Paul's life, he spent some time in what was then called Asia doing ministry. And he he was writing back to people in 1 Corinthians, sorry, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 9 and 10. And this is what he said. Line this up with Mordecai's experience. This is what he said. Paul says, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. That again is really important for Paul. That again means that he's seen a pattern. God delivered, 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 delivered. Now we're in the present. What's going to happen next? Deliver, 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 deliver. And ultimately, that's a big one at the end. That's what Paul is able to trust in. That's what Mordecai is able to trust in. And we have a little bit of taste for this in our everyday experience. A little bit. It's different, but you have a category for this. Let's say you run, like I don't, but you're a jogger. All right? You jog three miles every day because that's who you are. You're a CrossFitter, whatever you do. And you're jogging three miles, and about mile one and a half, what happens if you're out of shape, like me? You start thinking, oh, I can't do this anymore. Man, I'm going faster than normal. I just can't keep up this pace. I can't do it. What I need to do, I just need to stop here, get a Coke. I need to do something. <laughs> and then what happens? You start thinking, well, I ran this yesterday, and man, somehow I made it. I'm just going to push through. I'm going to do it. And the day before that, I made it. I'm going to do it again. So... And then you finish, right? You rely on what's happened in the past. So as humans, we have a category for this. The challenge is, as humans, in our experience, it doesn't always work. For instance, I was uh, coaching my son's 10-year-old ball team the other day, and we were having practice, and, and the football team, in order to get prepared for the games, you run a lot. So we run wind sprints, down and back, down and back. You got pads on, man. It's the worst part of football, run down and back, down and back. And then after that, it's really harder on the heavier kids. It's easier on the lighter kids. After that, you put them right into a drill so they do their drills completely tired so that in the game they can function, right? So after that, we jump in a drill, and that's how it happens every practice that I go to. Some child comes up to me, and he's like, oh, oh, coach, coach, grab my leg. I just, I'm just hurting, man. I'm hurting, coach. What's wrong? I can't do it. Those sprints, I'm, I'm hurting. I feel bad, coach. And in jumps my pastor coach pep talk, right? Well, son, remember back in August. It was much harder than today. We ran farther and you survived. 
right? And I'll say, and remember that time and just sin. My leg and my foot felt a sensation as this poor player, as much as I talked to him about his past successes, he could not rescue himself. And supper, I think, appeared on my clothing. But God's different from that, okay? God's deliverance always comes through, all right? It's not human deliverance. It's divine deliverance, and it always comes through. Charles Spurgeon knew this. Spurgeon wrote this. If our religion be of our own getting or our own making, it will perish, and the sooner it goes, the better. We don't need that, right? But if our religion is a matter of God's giving... We know that he shall never take back what he gives and that if he has commenced to work in us by his grace, he will never leave it unfinished. That's the rhythm of rescue. But what makes this so tough is that our deliverance isn't always instant, right? We don't have a Folger's faith. It's slow roasted. Why do you slow roast coffee? Thorough development, right? You want thorough development of the taste. Thorough development of your faith is God's aim, all right? If it were instant, you would not be developed. His goal is to perfect in you a sturdy, hearty faith that's worthy of him when he comes back in Jesus, that's blameless. Mordecai didn't know how or why he would be rescued but he was able to have that type of faith. And he remembered. God kept his promise to Eve. God kept his promise to Abraham and to David and to all God's chosen people and he'll keep his promises to me. I don't know how, but ultimately, eternally, when it matters, I will be delivered. Jesus came with a different type of covenant, a new pledge to his people that emphasized Forgiveness of sins and forever rescue. Jesus used to walk around saying it like this. We have it in John 6, Jesus' words, verse 39 40. He says, And this is the will of the one, the Father who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. But what? Raise it up on the last day. Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father. Here's an insight into what God is actually thinking. You've ever wondered, what's the Father thinking about me right now? Jesus tells us, here's the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up. Rescue talk. I will raise Him up on the last day. Jesus offered you eternal rescue. The condition here is trusting in Him. Look to the Son. I'll do the raising. I'll do the rescuing. You look to the sun. That's our call today. Tuesday mornings, we have Bible studies here at the church. One of them is going through the book of Revelation. It's much farther ahead of the other Bible study that's only in Genesis. That's a joke. It has nothing to do with pacing, just different book. But in the Revelation, in the Revelation 
study, you might know that when John writes to the book of Revelation, he, you know, God is talking to real people there. It's a real church. People are hurting. They have kids that scream. They're losing jobs. They're physically worn down. They're frowned upon by their culture. And Jesus gives them visions to maintain them in their faith. And at the very end of the book, almost the last thing he has to say, when he's trying to keep these people encouraged, know that you'll be rescued, he gives them a a vision of a giant city, a new Jerusalem that's coming down. And that Jerusalem is surrounded by something. Huge, great walls. Jerusalem is God with his people. Walls are what? Security, right? Put a wall up, symbolizes security. God wants you to know that all I have given you in Christ is secure. I will rescue you. Hang on. It won't be long. We have a secure arrangement with our Father. Isaiah looked forward to this arrangement in chapter 26, and he says, we have a strong city. God makes salvation. It's walls. It's ramparts. Open the gates that righteous nation may enter. The nation that keeps faith. You will keep in perfect peace, talking to God. God, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord himself is rock eternal. God will raise you by recalling to your mind that Jesus is your rock. That's how he rescues you. And so I just pray today going to let the word have the last say as I want to read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 8 and 9. I pray, my prayer for you is that as you yearn to be rescued, you will embrace these words from Paul, from God himself in 1 Corinthians 1 where Paul says, verses 8 and 9, God will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the last day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with His Son Jesus Christ, is faithful. That's your hope today. God is faithful to rescue you. Let's pray. God, thank you for all who you are in Jesus Christ. Phenomenal rescue that we see glimpses of and pointers to here in Esther. And I just pray that as your people, we will trust. Work in us a mighty work of trust today by your spirit. Amen. We will move now to the table of our Lord, the rescuer. We'll take the bread. We'll take the cup. It's supposed to remind you of Jesus on the cross rescuing you, and supposed to remind you that he's coming again. The blood of the new covenant. He hasn't left you here alone. He's coming again. We have this for everyone here who is a truster, a worshiper, a believer in Jesus Christ. If you're here from another church, feel free to partake with us. If you're just checking out Christianity, or if you're a child who doesn't know Jesus, just watch, pray, and God will meet you in your seat sometime. He does amazing things. But you're invited to take this meal if you're a Christian. Spend some time praying to God right now, and then whenever you're ready, you can approach the table and take the elements back to your seat. Pray to God.
and then have the Lord's Supper. So let's do this now together.